Hey, welcome back to the channel. My name is Simlund. Today we do another Instagram Q&A. If you want to ask me a question, then follow me on Instagram at Simlund, and I do those Q&As there regularly. This episode is brought to you by Zbiotics. Zbiotics is a probiotic drink that breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for rough mornings after drinking. It's commonly thought that dehydration causes the horrible feeling in the morning after drinking. However, it's actually the buildup of a toxic byproduct of alcohol in the gut called acetylaldehyde. Zbiotics break down acetylaldehyde by producing an enzyme in the gut. Zbiotics doesn't make you feel less intoxicated or prevent a bad night's sleep, but it does prevent the sluggish feeling after drinking. Zbiotics is FDA compliant and tested. The only ingredients are water, patented probiotic blend, and natural flavoring. It's available only in the United States and comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get 15% off your first order of Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic by clicking the link in the description box and use my code SIEM, S-I-I-M, at checkout. Go to zbiotics.com forward slash SIEM or scan the QR code on the screen right now and get 15% off on your first order. Do it! First question, thoughts on L-theanine. So L-theanine is, um, I think it's very underrated amino acid and it's definitely one of the most like potent or let's say most cost-effective uh, nootropics in terms of maintaining mental focus and uh, helping with calming down and stress even. So usually people use L-theanine, let's say biohackers, they use L-theanine in combination with coffee. So they drink some caffeine or coffee or whatever, any kind of form of caffeine, and they also take like 200 milligrams of L-theanine, and it helps to maintain this mental stability, or let's say prevents some of the uh, overstimulation from caffeine and kind of smooths out the response. So you get like a more sustained release of the uh, caffeine, which I think is very good and very um, effective. Some people can also use L-theanine for sleep and uh, it definitely works for that. I personally would much rather use it yeah, for with the caffeine and use some other like maybe herbal tea or some glycine and uh, melatonin, those things as a sleep supplement. But yeah, like L-theanine is very good if you are if you tend to be like overstimulated, overstressed and anxious and uh, jittery. So it definitely works with those kind of conditions. Which is better for sleep, inositol or glycine? So that's a tough question, actually, because both of them are pretty good for sleep. I would say that glycine is still superior to improving sleep because, you know, there's such just so many things glycine helps in terms of sleep. Like it's going to help to lower your body temperature, which is one of the main triggers for melatonin synthesis. And glycine is also a GABAergic or like a similar to GABA a neurotransmitter and it acts as a like inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain that helps with yeah calming down and relaxing much more so than uh, inositol so inositol is involved in the synthesis of different kinds of neurotransmitters including GABA and serotonin but uh, I don't think that it's as potent as a it's not like a direct stimulator of those it's more like a cofactor in those neurotransmitters, uh, whereas like glycine is more like a direct stimulator of GABA and uh, you know relaxation and melatonin synthesis as well in terms of cooling down your body uh, temperature. Next question, thoughts on Viagra. <laughs> so uh, I think that's probably in, in relation to one of my recent videos where I talked about this new study that showed how Viagra use is associated with reduced mortality and increased longevity in men who are already with erectile dysfunction and pretty much atherosclerosis. So I think, yeah, in terms of that condition, if you're metabolic sick and you have heart disease, then Viagra probably is pretty good. It's like a very safe, you know, 
uh, nitric oxide booster or uh, vasodilator that helps with improving uh, cardiovascular function and yeah, erectile quality as well in those uh, men with already existing uh, atherosclerosis and heart disease and uh, erectile dysfunction. It probably has no like real longevity effect in uh, individuals without heart disease. Agar can normally probably, you know, make up for some of the uh, like shortcomings of having heart disease, which is also erectile dysfunction. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's prob probably like my, my thoughts on it. I think it's uh, not a, like a longevity supplement, but it's definitely a performance enhancing supplement in terms of improving also like blood flow to the muscles so you can use it as a i don't know pre-workout like some bodybuilders do or you know yeah like it's also like a performance enhancing supplement in the bedroom if you get what i mean uh, but i don't i don't think it has like any actual you know longevity effects in individuals without erectile dysfunction or like yeah lackluster erectile uh, quality if that makes sense thoughts on finalize finasteride uh, yeah, that's a lot of thoughts, questions. <laughs> so I'll, I guess I'll just think about thoughts on finasteride, um, which you can actually also like tie to one of the other recent videos that I made <laughs> about why men tend to live shorter than women on average. And one of the reasons probably has to, like from a physiological perspective, probably one of the reasons for that, that men have a baseline default shorter lifespan as compared to women is because of the higher androgen expression in men and higher DHT uh, levels that over time just wear out the heart, wear out the prostate and, you know, make things grow as well. So that's probably the uh, deep underlying reason why men physiologically tend to live uh, much shorter uh, than women. Of course, there's other things like the health and the lifestyle, the diet, alcohol, smoking, all those things are higher in men than women. But uh, deep down, I think that, you know, this is the reason why men would probably like, if all things equal, men would still live like one to two years shorter than women on average. Uh, but the finasteride, you know, I don't think it's, you know, depends on the individual again. Like uh, the people who have already healthy lifestyle, I don't think it's, most usually, obviously, use, is used for hair loss and preventing male pattern baldness, which is also partly caused by high DHT levels in the scalp. And but you know, finasteride also you know is bad for overall, let's say, sex hormone levels. At least, at least that's what that's what, that's the impression that I've like uh, had. And uh, yeah, it's something that I don't think is you know if you don't have this uh, male pattern baldness, baldness then probably obviously you wouldn't want to take finasteride but if you do then you know you have to assess is, is it worth it do you like value your hair and uh, your goldilocks uh, as much as your testosterone levels so you know but it doesn't mean that if you do take finasteride that you're gonna be like hypogonadal and you're gonna have to go on trt or something i don't think so <laughs> like you may see like a small drop in your testosterone levels but yeah, I mean, it depends on the individual as well. If you take care of everything else, you have a good diet, you sleep well, you exercise, you manage your stress, then I don't think the finasteride is going to have like any real negative impact on your testosterone levels either. Uh, but the only difference is that you may keep your hair. <laughs> but yeah, this is not like medical advice in terms of uh, medical advice in terms of heart disease or medical advice in terms of uh, hair loss. So definitely have to consult your doctor with that. Uh, so I'm just sharing my thoughts as the question <laughs> is. Uh, glycine timing right before, during, or right after high methionine meal. 
I think uh, it doesn't matter, like, you know, it doesn't have to be like that precise with the methionine because, yeah, like, you first have to digest the methionine, the methionine has to go into the methylation cycle and uh, recycle, etc. So all those things take time and the same applies to glycine. So, yeah, you can take the glycine whenever. It just matters. I think more matters is the daily, you know, intake of how much glycine are you getting versus how much methionine are you getting. And uh, meth- one gram of methionine does raise your glycine demands by one to two grams. So, like, I... Th- I personally prefer to get at least, you know, 10 to 20 grams of glycine per day from both collagen supplements and glycine supplements alone as well. Next question. When eating, what is more optimal for digestion and muscle protein synthesis? Carbs first and proteins second. And why? So for protein synthesis, um, you know, obviously you need protein and uh, you need at least three grams of uh, leucine to maximize the muscle protein synthesis response from a meal, which you usually get from 30 grams of protein uh, up to 40 or 50 grams as well for like maximum effectiveness. Uh, but you know, there's also insulin that can also stimulate muscle protein synthesis and the activation of mTOR, which is critical for building muscle like if you don't turn on mTOR then you don't really build uh, muscle either so you need you know optimal the biggest spike in mTOR and biggest protein synthesis you get from insulin that comes from carbs plus you know 30 to 50 grams of protein and I don't think that it really matters you know the order of which you eat it like you don't have to micromanage it to the point of okay my first bite is gonna be this potato and the second bite is gonna be this piece of steak because I want to like spike my insulin first to shuttle the amino acids into my you know uh, muscle cells or it doesn't have, have to be that precise you know you don't have to like yeah become go crazy about micromanaging to the point of uh, that and I think yeah if you just eat a food that has carbs plus protein then that's why you maximize the protein synthesis and the mTOR activation you just need to make sure that yeah it's 30 to 50 grams of protein and uh, to spike insulin you don't need that much because yeah chances are you're going to spike insulin even with that 30 to 50 grams of protein if it's like animal based or something like that uh, but yeah like I would add at least like you know, 50 grams of carbs from this high glycemic carbs as a, you know, safety in terms of if you want to maximize the most protein synthesis from that meal. Next question, do you use uh, nicotine? Uh, yes, I use uh, nicotine gum. So I'll maybe get like one milligram of nicotine from the nicotine. So, you know, the usual nicotine gum has two milligrams of nicotine. I'll take half and uh, I'll do it maybe like every other day or so. And the way I use it is as a like nootropic. So nicotine has pretty good cognitive effects and uh, it actually yeah may like rev- slow down brain aging slows down cognitive decline and definitely helps with the focus i don't uh, like to take more than that because nicotine is also like a vasoconstrictive so it like reduces blood flow and uh, yeah like you know you don't want to like take it pre-workout probably like and uh, it may have like some like negative effects on you know, overall cardiovascular disease health as well if you take like, I don't know, four or six milligrams a day. Uh, but I take, yeah, like just one milligram and uh, yeah, it works pretty good as a nootropic agent and a cognitive booster. How much supplemental magnesium can your body absorb at once? What dose do you take? So uh, that depends a lot on the individual and their particular magnesium status in that moment. So uh, the more depleted you are of magnesium, then the more you can take pretty much before you get diarrhea. So the uh, threshold at which your like magnesium stores get filled, filled up uh, depends on like 
you know, when you get diarrhea, if you take like a thousand milligrams and you don't get diarrhea, then yeah, chances are your cells are pretty depleted of magnesium and you keep, and you can keep taking more. Yeah, like it's a diarrhea test is generally uh, when you can see that, okay, I'm actually reaching too much of an intake. And uh, yeah, if you, you know, get diarrhea already within 400 milligrams or 500, 600 milligrams, then yeah, you don't need to take more. Usually most like magnesium supplements are 200 to 400 milligrams. I wouldn't say that you need more unless uh, you actually still experience the symptoms. So if you still get the symptoms of low magnesium, like anxiety, stress, sleeping problems and cramps even, then you could you know, try to take more, to try to take 800 or 1000 milligrams. But once you start getting diarrhea, then that's, uh, that's a sign that you're reaching the limit of you know, how, much, how much magnesium your body uh, needs in that moment. Uh, L-theanine and L-tyrosine in coffee, or which one is better for brain and energy power? So I personally would say that theanine is better with coffee because of what I explained earlier, that it maintains this calmness and smoothness. Um, tyrosine is a good uh, dopamine precursor, so that can also be very good for, you know, getting energized. So whereas where, while th- theanine is more like a calming, like a downer, then tyrosine tends to be more upper or it, you know, increases your dopamine levels and can increase your motivation and uh, mood in that way. So you need to like assess you as an individual because there's these different uh, neurotransmitters, they're, they're in different ratios and imbalance between people. Some people are more very dopaminergic. They don't need extra dopamine and they actually might need like more downers. Whereas others who are too down or too serotonergic, then they may need more like dopamine. So uh, as an individual, you need to like, yeah, just pay attention to what uh, you need in that uh, moment. But both are fine. I would choose theanine because I tend to already have plenty of uh, dopamine as well and uh, I'd much rather benefit from some extra theanine. Tips to make HRV better. So heart rate variability, very important for stress management, recovery and overall stress adaptation. So uh, my HRV is super high. <laughs> I don't know, you know, or I mean, I, I do know why probably. It's because of I exercise a lot, I do cardio, I sleep well, I uh, take the sauna, I do time-restricted eating, I fast, I have a good clean diet. Um, and yeah, that's those are the pretty much the biggest things that raise your HRV. And managing your stress is important. And I think cardio is one of the most underrated aspects and just being fit overall. Fasting generally does it as well, unless you do like very super long fasts, then your HRV can uh, drop slightly. Next question, is walking outside in degrees the same for muscle growth as cold water after gym. <laughs> so I, get, I think it means that, you know, if you walk outside, it's cold. Is it going to shut down your uh, muscle growth the same way as taking an ice bath after a workout? So uh, the answer to that is probably, I don't know, <laughs> because we, don't, we haven't had that kind of a study. We haven't had people walking out in the snow, you know, depend, if you're like, let's say, without any clothes. Uh, you're like with your t-shirt only in the snow walking around, then, you know, if you stay there for half an hour or 60 minutes or something, then yeah, probably just because of the shivering response over time, it probably will downregulate some protein synthesis and mTOR activation, similar to like an ice bath. Uh, But if you have like a jacket on, you have, you know, a scarf, a hat, and you're not like particularly shivering, then it's probably not going to uh, do that. Uh, Whereas, you know, and if you do it only for five minutes, then probably it's not enough because it's not as cold as five minutes in an ice bath, which generally is uh, enough to shut down the mTOR. 
Can we take creatine, collagen, glycine together? Yes, I don't see a reason why not. Um, are there any non-dairy sources of calcium that are as calcium dense as dairy? Yes, there are. So the biggest non-dairy form of calcium is just fish bones and uh, chicken bones and tendons and those things. So yeah, like sardines, herring, mackerel, you know, even salmon bones, all those things are pretty good for calcium. Uh, it's just that most people don't uh, eat them that much. And you have to be careful of you know not getting the rods or the like small bones stuck in your throat or something like that. But like if they're sardines, then you can eat the bones very easily. And other non-dairy calcium sources, uh, you know, usually like leafy greens and uh, kale, spinach, those those kind of things. Next question: Is it okay to eat fried food if fried in olive oil? Fried potatoes in olive oil? <laughs> uh, I don't see a reason why not. I mean, you know, the frying of any oil generally does promote some of oxidation and uh, yeah make may make that oil slightly more inflammatory but uh, even then like olive oil you know the myth is that uh, don't cook with olive oil because it's going to get oxidized uh, well the truth is that you know olive oil still has a lot of these polyphenols granted that it's extra virgin olive oil that also protect the oil from the uh, heat so uh, i don't i don't see an issue with uh, cooking with olive oil actually like uh, you know cooking and frying in like sunflower oil or rapeseed oil is the, is the reason why it gets oxidized even like you know cold pressed olive oil so sorry a uh, cold pressed uh, rapeseed oil isn't harmful unless you actually cook with it so if you use like cold cold pressed rapeseed oil probably has no you know harm because it isn't oxidized except that it is high in omega-6 as well but with olive oil yeah if it has polyphenols if it's uh, extra virgin olive oil that has you know, it's a good quality, then uh, the polyphenols do protect against the oxidation as well uh, from the heat. And uh, yeah, like just frying potatoes, yeah, I don't see an issue with that. Good to take vitamin C plus garlic before a workout. Um, unless you're going to go kill some vampires, <laughs> then uh, yeah, why not? Uh, oh, sorry, especially if you're going to go kill some vampires, then yeah, why not? So um, uh, vitamin C before a workout is definitely good for the collagen synthesis Garlic, uh, I personally would say taking some garlic, you know, with food is probably better because the allicin is going to help with the the rise in triglycerides from the meal, and it makes more sense to take the garlic with the meal, uh, I think, because that's where you get the biggest rise in the triglycerides. Thoughts on forscolin for testosterone? I haven't heard that uh, forscolin raises testosterone. I have heard that it might help with like fat burning and fat, like fat oxidation. Uh, but I don't think that it's a significant amount, but I'm not sure about the testosterone. Next question, if you had to choose one, which would it be? Light exercise before a meal versus after a meal? I would definitely choose uh, before a meal because, yeah, it makes more sense to move before eating so that uh, the insulin sensitivity increases and you would just shuttle the uh, food and nutrients into muscle cells rather than raising blood sugar. So exercising before a meal reduces the postprandial blood sugar as well uh, where i mean yeah, it is true that exercising after a meal would also lower the blood sugar but your blood sugar would rise significantly higher if you hadn't exercised before the meal so yeah it just makes more sense to exercise before then the blood sugar response from the meal would be half almost and then you go for maybe like a s small walk like five to ten minutes walk that will also cut down the blood sugar response from the meal so the that is much more logical in my sense uh, I think it's just makes more sense.
Next question, what would your main source of protein be if you were, if you were a vegetarian? Well, I think if I were vegetarian, you know, there's different types of vegetarianism. Some people eat fish, some people eat eggs, some people eat only plants. If I were a vegan, then I'd definitely eat crump. So this is the uh, plant-based granule made of hemp and pea, pea flour. Only these two ingredients, the one that I helped to co-found and uh, run. So this is probably the best vegan protein source out there in the world because it has all the amino acids and it's twice as high in... Uh, in protein than beef per 100 grams so as a vegan i would take that and even as a vegetarian i think that's a pretty good option as well if you don't have you know good fish then it doesn't make sense to add that and you know eggs are great as well but i wouldn't like want to eat like 10 eggs <laughs> per day or something uh, i would much rather rather have like maybe you know two to four eggs a day, a little bit of fish, and the rest of the protein come from uh, the crump. Next question, what do you think about Brian Johnson and what he did to look younger? So yeah, definitely check out my videos about his uh, process, his blueprint uh, protocol, as he calls. And I think, I mean, that's a very still amazing uh, thing that he's doing. Many people criticize him for, first of all, the amount of money he spends for it. I think that you know, in order to do that specific and that precise testing before and after, etc., you need that much money for sure. And uh, second of all, it's his money. He can do whatever he wants with it. And I think third of all, it still helps to advance some science about longevity and, uh, you know, understand what are the actual things that do slow down biological aging. So kudos to him for all the things that he's doing. I think it's great and uh, definitely... Uh, many people would benefit from following the protocol. Uh, but I think uh, at the same time, there's also many things that are probably unnecessary in his protocol or they're just too over the top, like overkills. Um, so yeah, you know, what, what those things are, I'm not going to say right now. I have my own thoughts about this and my own like protocol that I follow. And obviously what he's doing probably may not apply to everyone. So there needs to be some adjustments for everyone you know, in terms of their lifestyle, their age, like what is good for someone in their 40s may not be the best thing for someone in their 20s and vice versa. So what is the best longevity protocol for you depends on your age, your gender, your lifestyle and your, let's say, opportunities and uh, availabilities to different supplements, foods, etc., medical care and all those things. But overall, he's great. I think he's doing a really good job in terms of, yeah, just showing what is possible actually. Next question, is it okay to put collagen powder in whey protein shake or does it affect absorption? I think it's good to put there and it probably has like even superior effect because, you know, you need protein for collagen synthesis in the skin or skin turnover as well. So yeah, get the more protein. And if you have like 20 grams of whey and 10 grams of collagen peptides, then that's, that's a very good amount as a meal replacement. Next question, what are the negative side effects of too many antioxidants? So, uh, you know, Generally, people say that more antioxidants are better because it helps to reduce oxidative stress in the body and inflammation, which are true to a certain extent. We definitely are exposed to a lot more oxidative stress every day than we should. And uh, many people just have excess oxidative stress and, uh, yeah, they just need to like lower it with antioxidants. And if you get like antioxidants from food, like, I don't think you could, you could get like enough antioxidants or too much antioxidants from food. If you just eat fruits and vegetables, 
then you don't have to worry about getting too many antioxidants. Uh, uh, but uh, when it comes to like supplements, then yeah, you could take like too many antioxidant supplements. And some of the harm of that is that, you know, if you take it after exercise, then it can reduce some of the adaptations from exercise, especially muscle growth. We have studies showing that that vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, vitamin A and uh, N-acetylcysteine and different kinds of antioxidants, they do have a negative side effect on the exercise adaptations after a workout. So you don't want to take these, uh, you know, antioxidants post-workout. You, you can definitely take them before the workout, but not uh, after that. And uh, that's the only harm. And from a longevity side, then blocking all antioxidants and from a longevity side, then blocking all oxidative stress is also harmful because your body actually needs the small amount of oxidative stress from our environment to become stronger through hormesis. So ramping up our own body's endogenous antioxidant defense systems like glutathione, superoxamide dismutase, etc. Those are the ones that actually make us more resilient and keep us more resilient against the environment. And if we just block it all with the uh, antioxidants, we don't generate enough reactive oxygen species, then we become frail and we lack the resilience. So we actually become more vulnerable to the oxidative stress. So you don't want to block all oxidative stress and all reactive oxygen species all the time. There are different types of oxidative stress that you may want to block. Like you do want to block excess oxidative stress from like radiation and uh, infrared light and uh, you know UV radiation, more precisely not the sun. Uh, and uh, you want to block like the oxidative stress from like dietary sources and uh, like different chemicals and uh, whatever other man-made stressors we may get exposed to. But you don't want to block the uh, oxidative stress from exercise. And chances are, if you take just too many antioxidants, antioxidants all the time, then you will block your body's own endogenous antioxidant defense systems as well. So personally, I th I would be more careful with supplementing antioxidants in large doses all the time. There are times that you do want to take it, but not all the time. And it varies between individuals and their health status and health condition. Next question, how much do you think the cephalic response plays a role in blood glucose? So that's a very good question because yeah, like the cephalic response refers to your, uh, let's say gut stimulating insulin before you actually consume something that has sugar or sweetness. So usually refers to if you consume like artificial sweeteners or if you look at something that is sweet so you look at a piece of cake you start to salivate and you know oh my god this tastes nice and sweet and your body already releases insulin because it anti anticipates eating those uh, carbohydrates so what i what i think i think that it definitely you know it has some effect but again i wouldn't like start to <laughs> worry about it uh, too much uh, what generally may happen is that individuals who are more predisposed to those things like diabetics probably are more likely to stimulate the uh, cephalic phase response than uh, non-diabetics or obese individuals as well. I think there are there is some studies uh, linking those two things and uh, normal people like unless you are literally like you know salivating over it and imagining that you're eating the cake then I don't think that it's a big issue. Like if you just smell pastries, if you just glance at a piece of cake at the supermarket or something like that, then probably not very significant. And even if it is, you know, let's say, even if you do just smell pastries or you smell something delicious, 
then, uh, you know, let's say, and you do stimulate insulin in response to that, then I don't think that it's, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Like, uh, small spikes, you know, it, it's not going to raise your blood sugar. It's going to raise your insulin, which can actually make you hypoglycemic if you think about the, like, proper order of things. So it's probably not going to raise your blood sugar, but it can definitely raise insulin. And whether or not it matters, you know, it depends a lot on your overall health and your, let's say, what else you do overall. Next question, best at home lower body exercises for someone that has knee pain. I own dumbbells and a bench. So I definitely recommend to check out uh, the Instagram account of knees over toes guy. So uh, he talks a lot about rehabilitation exercises for the knees. And those are amazing exercises. They're going to make your knees a lot more resilient and can also reduce knee pain. So I personally think that everyone should do those kind of uh, knee rehabilitation exercises even just with body weight. And the way you do it is that you just, you know, start where you're at. There's different starting points for different people. But the main message is that you need to strengthen the knee at the fullest range of motion and in the ranges of motion that you're most vulnerable at. So if you never train below parallel, if you never do like full deep squats, like ass to grass uh, squats, then yeah, it's gonna lead to some knee pain because your knee lacks the stimulus and lacks the muscles in that range of motion so you need to do like first of all start with trying to get you know as low of a squat as you can and improve the range of motion and improve the mobility in those uh, positions so that's the healthiest thing that you can start off uh, with and it doesn't require really you know any weights or anything at all but yeah definitely check out knees over toes guy he has a ton of tutorials and different exercises that you can do you know starting right now and last question is NAC a potential carcinogen for lungs? Uh, well, I haven't heard any or haven't found any studies relating to that. You know, what we talked about earlier is that um, NAC can inhibit some aspects of exercise recovery and exercise adaptations if you take it after the workout. I think that's the only thing <laughs> that it could do as a harm. Uh, I don't think that it can have like any carcinogenic effects because it actually boosts glutathione and glutathione maintaining good antioxidant defense systems is one of the most important things for like uh, main preventing cancer and any kinds of other chronic diseases. So I don't think that I haven't, I, I may change my mind if I see some studies, but uh, personally I haven't, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that it could be uh, carcinogenic. Alright, that's it for this uh, Q&A. If you want to ask a question in the future, then follow me on Instagram at Seamlund. Other than that, thanks for watching this video. Make sure you click a like, subscribe, notification bell as well. My name is Seam. Stay optimized, stay empowered.